So we are talking about wrestling with the love of God from 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Okay, you can all go home now. That's, that's all you need, really. The, you know, the book of 1 John is an amazing and exceptional letter written sometime in the uh, early to middle 90s of the first century. John, by the Holy Spirit, relates to the church as the family of God over and over again, Throughout the letter, he speaks to his readers as little children. When the church is the family, which, which it is, then relationship becomes the central issue, relationship. And there are actually five verses in, in the letter that John specifically cites as to the reason for his writing the letter. And in each one of those five Relationship is an important aspect. Relationship, not just a 90s buzzword. It really is the how and why of our connectedness to the Lord. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, that you may have connection with God. Chapter 1, verse 4, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. The only real joy that endures in this world is joy that's going to come from your attachment to God. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He writes to us so that we might not sin and have the benefit of the advocate that maintains and addresses our connection to Christ. In 5.13, actually in 5.13, he gives us two reasons. First, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes to believers that they may be confident concerning their connection to the Lord, the eternal life they have. And secondly, in 5.13, that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. He writes to them that they may be consistent, that they may have uh, the continuance to believe in the Lord in the relationship that God's given to us. Letter, for the most part, is written in very simple language, um, at least in comparison to, for instance, Hebrews or the, the writings of Luke or Paul, even Paul's epistles. But the content and the ideas are uh, very substantial. Um, so much so that a really easy thing to teach 
a part of this and, and walk away with the impression that you're just barely scratching the surface. And so there's a lot here. And so today, as I mentioned, we're going to look at chapter 4 from verses 12 to 16 in three sections. In verses 12 and 13, we're going to talk about abiding with the Father. In verses 14 and 15, we're going to talk about abiding with Christ. And then in verse 16, we're going to talk about abiding with love. We're going to talk about abiding a lot, and that's not a real common uh, term in our, our, the vernacular of the day. So I'd like to give you a definition for it. The definition of abiding, to act in accord with, to submit to or agree to, to remain with steadfast or faithfully to keep, to abide. Remember the definition. It's going to come up again. Abiding with the Father, in verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. The fact that Jesus is portrayed in the scripture as God is abundantly clear. There are dozens and dozens of scriptures we could cite that identify Jesus in human flesh as God in human flesh. John, the Gospel of John, John 1, 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. Um, John, chapter 20. Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 28, where Thomas addresses Jesus, my Lord and my God. And then in Acts, chapter 20, verse 28, where the Apostle Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders and mentions that God has purchased the church with his own blood. Many, many other scriptures. Jesus is identified as God in human flesh. And so how do you say no one has seen God at any time? And so we obviously we're going to make the assertion here that the Apostle John is writing about God the Father. He's not talking about Christ, obviously, because John himself saw uh, Jesus Christ. Him, and he also attests to the fact that Jesus is God. There's a long-standing tradition in Judaism coming out of to this very day in Judeo-Christian thought and rabbinical thought concerning biblical truths that are plainly contradictions to one another from the human perspective, while at the same time being true on both sides. Let me give you a couple of examples. Things that are contradictions, but we know are, in fact, both true. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God is the word Elohim. Any Hebrew word ending in I am is plural. So the, the word for God in Genesis 1, 1 is a plural word. If we were going to translate it on the basis of sing, simply linguistic rules, it would read, in the beginning, God's created the heavens. But that's not right. And we know that because of what it says in the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Another example. Genesis 22, verse 2. The Lord speaking to Abraham. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. What happened to Ishmael? Was he not the son of Abraham? For some reason, God decided that he only had one son here. 
And, and this is, it's true. I mean, he is certainly his only Jewish son. Um, the problem, for instance, just as a theological issue, the problem between free will and predestination. The Bible clearly teaches that if, if you are a believer in Christ, you have been predestined to be a believer in Christ. But you also have free will. How does that work? I don't know. If you have that figured out, I want to talk to you after the service. Give, give me a heads up. There's a great illustration of this idea in uh, the movie or the play Fiddler on the Roof from the writings of Shalom Aleichem. And the, the guy, the key character in the movie is a guy named Tevye. He's a milkman. And he's in, in his village. He's discussing. And the guy comes up to him and he has a particular point to make. And the guy makes his, his point and Tevye says, well, you're right. And another guy comes up to him and says something contradictory. He says, no, 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 that's not. And he says something and, and he looks at him and he says, you're right too. The third guy comes up and says, wait a minute, they can't both be right. And he says, and you're right too. <laughs> In Romans eleven thirty three, it tells us that God's, how unsearchable are the judgments of the Lord and his ways past finding out. And the truth is, folks, from where we stand it sure seems to be a contradiction to say that no one has seen God at any time, especially for somebody who walked with him. Beings that we understand clearly from the scripture that Jesus is God, let me assure you that as you see things from the vantage point of eternity, we will understand much more clearly God's purpose and his perspective at work in all these things. And so here in verse 12, at the beginning of the verse, we have almost the exact same words that John used in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He goes on in the Gospel of John to elaborate a little more. Well, how has Christ declared the Father? In the incarnation? In his life? In his ministry? And even in your life, in your life, you are the expression of the Father's work in and through Christ because you are a new creation. And you might say, wow, I feel badly for God if he needs to rely on my testimony as evidence of his work through Jesus. The truth is, he doesn't need to. He gets to. He gets to. When, when you see the final result of what God has done in your life, you'll understand. Remember, John, here in 1 John, he's writing to a group of people outside of Israel who, like us, never saw Jesus, never had the opportunity to see him as John did. For us, Jesus is declared the Father by the Scripture. He's declared the Father by abiding in us through the Holy Spirit. But he's done it all the same. Jesus is God. And the point that one of the points, at least, that John's trying to set forth here in verse 12 is that God is transcendent. He is beyond us. He is far beyond us. He's beyond our imagination in every way. And then he says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Uh, in A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, says that this Greek tense is better rendered if we keep on loving one another, if we continue there's a the tense in the Greek implies a continual action. Love is a sign of the indwelling of God in men, says Dr. Brooke. 
obviously, love is not our natural inclination on this planet. You don't have to look at the world too hard or too long through world history to identify the fact that love is not really our strong suit. Uh, This love that John uses throughout the book is God's agape love, um, sacrificial love. Actually, you hear preachers talk all the time about uh, four different kinds of love in the Greek language. There's agape, the love of God. There is phileo, which is brotherly love. Then there is eros, which is romantic love. And then there's storge, which is familial affection, familial love between families. Actually, the only two words for love that show up in the New Testament are agape and phileo. None of the other two appear in the New Testament in any place. They don't show up. Sometimes you hear people identify God's agape love as unconditional love. I think it's better to be described as sacrificial Love that can't be deserved or earned by any means. It is sacrificial. What does this love look like? Well, whatever it looks like, it is powerful. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So people who are going to recognize me as a disciple of Jesus Christ, they're going to do so because of my affection towards other believers in Christ. That's crazy. That's wild. He says, again in 12b, if if we love one another, God abides in us. If, if we love one another, big if. Not, Not if we look like we love one another or act like we love one another. We all know how to do that. We all know how to approximate the appearance of what we're supposed to. Do you ever do that? Do you ever do something and act in a certain way because you know it, it, what your actions should be? I do this all the time. And because my motives and my feelings are not things that I can just change at the snap of my fingers. I can't change my motive. I can't change the way I feel about a situation arbitrarily. God's agape love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. There are times when there are feelings present. It may be very emotional, but for the greater part, it is a commitment, a decision, a conviction to principle. That's God's agape love. So I do the right thing, and I pray for God to do what I can't, to get the rest of me where I need to be. Now, you might say, well, that's hypocrisy. Okay, well, it might be. But if I wait for my heart and my mind to be 100% right about the things that I do, I'll never get anything done. And I believe this attitude of stepping out and doing what I know I should do, I believe it's scriptural. Ephesians 4.24 says that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 6.11 tells us to put on the whole armor of Christ. 6.14 tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. What's he telling me? That I should act in agreement with these ideas, whether I feel like it or not. Put these things on. Take them to myself Make the effort to make them a part of myself. First Thessalonians 5.8 says, 
Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet of hope and salvation. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Colossians 3.10 says, Having put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And Galatians 3.27, For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Do these actions and attitudes truly portray what I think and what I feel? Not always. Not always. But that's not my job. My job is to deny myself, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. And when I do what I believe Jesus would have me do in a situation, asking God to make it an honest effort to change my heart, then I am following Jesus' instruction in, in Luke 9.23. Romans 13.14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. I don't always want to be nice. I probably, from time to time, want to give people a piece of my mind. But I can't really afford to lose it. So I pray, Lord... Make my actions right. Make my words truth. Change my heart to see your truth, to acknowledge, so that I can learn to love the way that Jesus... You know what works? I was thinking the other day, going through these passages. Years ago, I worked in a factory in the city of Van Nuys and uh, was in a situation uh, where I was trying to move a 55-gallon drum. It's a big steel drum carries 55 gallons of liquid. It's pretty heavy. And I was trying, it was laying down. I was trying to lift it up and I got it like an, just a little bit, tiny bit off the ground. It's very heavy. And I was in a position where I could injure myself really badly. If I dropped it, it could have been a real problem. And the guy that I worked with was walking by. And I said, and I yelled, I said, hey, give me a hand, give me a hand. I'm going to hurt myself here with this thing. And he looked at me and went, ah, go on. And he walked off. And I was like, and I got so angry, I lifted it. I was like, Ugh, you know, really made me angry. I thought, man, what a loser. I can't like, you know, can't, what, what, ha. And so shortly after that I was a believer, of course, holy man of God. And uh, I started praying for God to teach me about the love of God. Lord, you know, help me understand this. And the strangest thing started. I had like this affection for this guy. I felt like. I started praying for him. I felt bad for him. I felt like, you know, how terrible to be you. Uh, but I mean, but not like that. But I mean, I really did. I just felt compelled. I felt like, wow, I really need to pray for this guy. And, and I, and I look, I thought, wow, the Lord's teaching me how to love. It's totally cool. If we do, if we love, God abides in us. We are forever telling little kids how Jesus lives in their hearts, you know, and, and, not only that, it's the truth. That's the idea, same idea. And not only does God abide in us, but his love has been perfected to us. Very similar to 1 John 2, 5. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Or 4.17, that we're not going to get to today. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. So the love of the Father abiding in my life, 
a love that cannot be earned or deserved, abiding to act in, in accord with, to submit, to agree with, to remain steadfast or faithfully to keep. This love is being perfected. It's being made complete. Think about this, guys. The thing for which this love was intended, the purpose, the objective of God's love, only in the lives of men and women surrendered to the truth of Jesus Christ does his love work in such a powerful and effective way. His love is perfected. Do you feel like you have the love of God working in your life? Aren't you glad you don't live according to your feelings? Amen. My whole life is a one day at a time process of bringing myself into agreement with the love of God in what I do, in what I say, even in how I think. You know, Second uh, Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 says we need to bring our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. You've got to do that. If you don't bring your thoughts captive, your body's going to be all over the place. You've got to bring it together. I don't see any reason to think that this process is going to be complete until I am with Jesus. But this is his purpose at work. It is the perfecting of his love to take a bunch of scattered and aimless, crazy people bent on self-destruction and turning them into the true disciples of the loving God. God's love is a powerful thing, maybe the most powerful thing that exists. In verse 13, he says, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We abide in him. How? How do we abide in God? That is in the body of Christ. You are the body. You're the church. You're the body of Christ. You abide in God and he in us. Well, Ephesians chapter one and verse 13 tells me that having believed in Christ, I was sealed with the Holy Spirit of Christ. Holy Spirit of God is inside of me and you if you're a believer in Christ. So he is in you by the Holy Spirit. You are in him. You're the body of Christ. Because he has given us of his spirit. Amazing thing to see the Holy Spirit at work in the life of a person. Most amazing when people don't know that they're being watched. When you see God do something. I'll never forget years ago I went on a youth retreat with a bunch of kids. And kids are fascinating. Uh, Teenagers. And... uh, there was this one boy that never talked much. A lot of boys never talk much. Uh, and he was kind of a tough guy, you know, 16, 17, and came to uh, church every Sunday. And I just kind of assumed his parents probably would make him come, you know, because he didn't look like he wanted to be there. And he was not very engaging, wouldn't talk to you. And I was like, how you doing? Figured out his name, said hi to him every once in a while. Signed up to go on a retreat. I was kind of, wow, what's up with that? Goes to the retreat sitting in the back of the room, and I'm standing up there in front, and we're getting ready, and uh, the worship team's leading worship. They're doing these songs going on. Kids are singing. And I look in the back of the room, and here's this kid, and he's back there, and he's trying to sing. He doesn't know the words to the song, and he's just trying. He's got his eyes closed, and, he's, and I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, it just blew me away to see the Holy Spirit of God work in this young man's life. That he wants to hand himself over to God. And he obviously not great at it, but he's doing what he can do. What an amazing thing. 
So often people don't see it in themselves when the Holy Spirit is working. But he is working. He's working in our lives. My wife likes to tell me what to do every once in a while. Um, okay, she, she does it all the time. She, she likes to tell me what to do all the time. Uh, and it, it doesn't really help me much that she's generally right. Uh, recently, a few weeks ago, there was a situation. And honestly, I don't remember what it was. I, I can't recall. And my wife was trying to get me to do something or another. And it was late in the evening. And I was just got kind of grumpy went to bed, and I woke up the next morning um, as grumpy as I went to bed. And I remember la- I was laying there in bed, and I'm, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, what is her problem? What is the matter with this woman? Doesn't she know who I am? <laughs> Obviously not. And so I'm all entrenched in my justification, being the victim and suffering this terrible injustice that I put up with all the time. Right about this time, a really interesting thought occurs to me. And I would like to say that it came from nowhere, but I'm pretty sure that's not where it came from. The thought occurred to me, this poor girl is just trying to help me get out of my own way. All that she wants in the whole world is to be a blessing to me. That's all she wants, is to be a blessing and an encouragement to me. Have you ever had that dream where you go to school and forgot to put your clothes on and you wind up sitting in the classroom, and then you realize, oh my gosh. I thought, I'm laying there in bed, I'm thinking, what is the matter with me? What is my problem? But you see, the really amazing thing is that that thought, the thought that there was something wrong with me, that it's not her, it's not the other guy with the speck in his eye, it's me. I am my own worst enemy. That thought didn't come from me. Now, you might say, well, maybe it did. You seem like a pretty nice guy. Maybe you just had a selfless moment. You had this point of clarity. Hey, I know me. That wasn't me. And it really doesn't matter what you think. I know. That, my friends, with the love of God at work by the Spirit of God, which he has given us. Now, certainly, there are a lot better ways for you to know the Spirit of God is at work in your life not the least of which is the confirmation of the Scripture. We're not limited to personal experience. People will take the most outrageous situation and blame them on the Holy Spirit. I need to be critically minded, and this is what the Scripture teaches me, but I know that the Spirit of God is at work in us. He says, He has given us of His Spirit. Interesting phrasing, don't you think? Of His Spirit. Now compare that with what John writes in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 34, as he speaks of Jesus. For whom God has sent, for he whom God has sent, speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Again, the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, God has put no limit on the Spirit's relation to the Son. God has given the Holy Spirit in its fullness to Christ and to no one else in that sense. For us, it says he has given us of his spirit to Christ. He does not give the spirit by measure. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that favoritism? God's no respecter of persons. Well, that's right. He's not. Well, then, but let me ask you a question. Um, What are you giving God to work with? I think it's safe to say the life of Jesus 
offered zero obstructions to the Holy Spirit. Can I say that? No. Well, I'd like to do more for God with my life. Good. Go for it. The world is your oyster. Wear it out. I think God would like to see that as well. Verse 14 and 15, abiding with Christ. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as a Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Like so much of the scripture, it seems so simple and straightforward. The more you examine the words, the Holy Spirit does an amazing job of making it personal and relevant to your life individually. So much of what we call the emergent church movement is devoted to making the scripture and the church relevant. That's not our job. It's not our job to make the Bible relevant. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. God makes the Bible relevant. God makes the church relevant by his effort, by his spirit directing. When we try to do it, we make the church stupid. We do. That's the best of our efforts. Again, in verse 14, we've seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. We. Notice throughout the the, the whole letter, John includes himself with the church in everything. He says that we are, we testify because we are God's witnesses. Isaiah 44, 8, he says, you are my witnesses. We have seen and we testify. If you're a born again believer in Jesus Christ, God has revealed himself to you personally. And most likely God has spoken to you himself through the scripture. So that you know that God is real. You know that Christ is God who died for your sins. And you know that the Bible is the word of God. That's how it worked in my life. And most commonly, this is how God reveals himself to persons, any person. People are so intimidated in being in a situation where they have an opportunity to share their faith. What they don't realize is God hasn't asked you to share anything that he hasn't shown you himself. For you to stand up in front of people and spout information and theology about all these ideas of soteriology and salvation and how it works or these Bible scholar quotes is going to do nobody any good. For you to tell somebody what God did in your life will move mountains. It's amazing. It's powerful. Because people will read you. They understand what happened in your life, how it affected you, whereas the rest of it's just talk. And that's what God has called us to do, to be witnesses of what he's done in our lives. In John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus says he's going to show up. Three other times in that chapter, he says the same thing, John 14. And numerous times throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, if you will commit yourself to me, I will show up powerfully. I will reveal myself to you. The scripture constrains us to be uh, witnesses, to bear testimony. Acts 4.20, it says, for we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. Acts 22.15, for you will be his witnesses to all men of what you have seen and heard. 1 John 1.3, 
That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And what are we witnesses of? Primarily, that the Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world. That's the deal. And this is the testimony of record from the gospel. Look at the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, he says, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, meaning the Jews, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, born of God, but of God. The same thing he says here, the Father sent the Son as Savior of the world by the will of God. Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, but of God. Whoever confesses, in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Notice, whoever, whoever, not the elect or the chosen or the religious or those that deserve to be saved, very small group that. Um, I'm so glad that the very first person in the Gospel of John that Jesus preached the Gospel to was a deeply religious and spiritual man. I'm so glad that he didn't preach at first to the woman at the well. Because then everybody would have said, oh yeah, she needs God, she's all messed up. But who did he go to? To a deeply religious man. And what did he tell him? You must be born again. How cool is that? You don't have what it takes. You can't do it on your own. You must be born again. It doesn't matter how many books you've read or how religious you are. If God doesn't change you from the inside out, you are lost. He says, whoever confesses. And folks, Confessing is not saying. Maybe in the police station, in the little room, when you're handcuffed to the table, confessing is saying. But not for God. That's not how it works. You can't just use words. People are liars. Good people are liars. Bent people can't help themselves. And broken people don't even know the difference between the truth and a lie. To confess with your life. To avow, acknowledge, admit, affirm, assert, concede, declare, maintain, proclaim Christ with your life. That doesn't sound like any fun, does it? Well, but maybe it's not. But you know, you're not here to be entertained. It's not a vacation. You're in the middle of a stinking war where people are dying for the truth of God. And it's about to become a shooting war. And you get to see it. Romans 13, 11 says it is high time for us to awake out of sleep. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believe. We need to wake up. And so what is it that we are confessing? That Jesus is the son. Whose son? That's the point. Exactly. He is God, the son, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And if your life bears testimony to that fact, then God abides in you.
and you in God. Again, sealed with the Holy Spirit, attached to the church. We abide. We act in agreement with. We submit in accord to. We remain with steadfast or faithfully to keep. Finally, in verse 16, abiding with love. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Phrasing is kind of a little unusual, seems unusual. Again, John includes himself, we have known and believed. It may seem like a small thing, it's really not. John does not set himself above God's people, even though by the time he's writing this letter, he is the very last of the 12 apostles that walked with Jesus that is still alive. All the other 11 apostles, including Matthias, who is the replacement for Judas and Judas, are all dead by violent means, one way or another, by this time. He's it. People may look at him in awe. There he goes. He's the guy who walked with Jesus. But, you know, John knows who he is. He's not, he's not distracted. And certainly God knows who he is. Important, folks, when God uses your efforts not to lose sight of who you really are. Because if you do, God will remind you. He, he can do that. He can help you understand who you really are, your frailty. It's sad as you listen to pastors on the radio from time to time. Every once in a while, you get a hint that people are associating who they are with the work that God does. God wants to use every single one of us, every one of you here in the sanctuary this morning. God wants to work through you by the power of his spirit. He's looking for opportunities every hour of the day to work through you for the benefit of people around you, to minister through you, to use the scriptures that he's planted inside your life to to touch the lives of people around you. He wants to do this. And when that happens, when you see the miracles that God's Holy Spirit can do, imagine what would happen to your perception of yourself if you were able to heal every person that you prayed for. Do you imagine that you could do that and still be clear and sane about who you really are? I doubt it. But it, the challenge is for us to remember, to know who we are. And John does that. He knows that he's just one of God's people. He's a failure like the rest of us. We have known and believed. It's interesting that he uses both both words, known and believe. No accidents. And he uses both words because he's placing an emphasis. In other words, this is important. We know this. We believe this. This is central. I mean, for us, we know lots of things that we don't necessarily believe. And even fewer things that we actually believe in a biblical context. The biblical definition of believing something is to believe uh, that to the extent that you stake your life upon that fact. When I say I believe in Christ, I place my life upon the person of Jesus Christ. And what is it that we believe? What is it that is so important? In the second part of verse 16, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. On the one hand, 
he's using this phrase, the love that God has for us as a figure of speech to describe our salvation. Your salvation is the evidence of the love that God has for you. Uh, Your relationship, the relationship that God has created between us and him. People, People don't create relationships. They... They cultivate them. They can encourage them. They don't create them. You know, when your children are small, you're able to form and affect a connection between you and them in a certain way. As your children become adults, it is what it is. Um, they're adults. They're grown-ups. You know, they, their relationship with you is what they want it to be to some extent. God created this relationship with his own two hands. He designed it. He invented the relationship that you have with him. Jesus is the embodiment of God's love for us. He is the basis of our relationship with, with God. First John chapter 4, verse 9 says, In this is the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. He put himself in a human body. He walked right into our nightmare and he said, Enough is enough. And John The Gospel of John 19, verse 30, he said, It is finished from the cross. He he counted out our enemy. He invented the idea of love. You know, easy to think that love just always existed. God invented love with you in mind. God invented the idea and all the beauty that it is. He, He envisioned this way before the mess with the enemy and all the things that have gone on. And not only that, he envisioned you. And all that you could be as a partner in truth, connected and attached to him in ways that we may never understand entirely. I think it's one of the most difficult things for people to truly appreciate God's affection for them. When I look at other people, uh, little kids and and lots of people, I I understand how God loves them. They look, they're wonderful, you know, but... I know a little bit about me. And, and, I, and you know, the Bible says God loves me. I know he does. He loves me. I know he does. But he's always watching me. <laughs> you know who you are. It's so important to know and believe that God loves you as he does. To have a confidence in that truth. To see yourself as connected to him the way that you are. We live in a world, folks, that has been poisoned and twisted for a thousand generations until the idea, just the ideas of truth and justice are alien to us, things that we can't really quite wrap our heads around. It's terrifying to me how there is no justice in this world. There's no way that the only time justice ever happens in the human world is by accident. And every human... Purpose, everything that people do, do, it reeks of revenge and spite and self-interest. You know, Cole Porter said, living well is the best revenge. No, it's not. It's just another kind of death. From the very beginning, our enemy has labored to distort and deny the truth of God's love for us. In Genesis chapter 3, and verse 4, the second thing that the enemy said To Eve in the garden, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of this fruit, 
Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, God has been holding out on you. There's this really great thing and he just doesn't want you. He, he's not really interested in your situation. He doesn't really care. And the world gives us a million reasons to believe that lie every single day. And so people get sucked into believing that if God really loved us, we wouldn't have to deal with these terrible and difficult situations. And life is terrible and very difficult and hard. This is the reality of where we live. Instead of believing that the trouble and hardship in my life is actually an amazing opportunity for God's love to reveal his purpose in in blessing us, to take the worst thing that ever happens in my life and make it into something amazing and beautiful. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, the Lord speaks to the inhabitants of Israel to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And folks, it's not that God is going to work everything out the way that I think it should be or make my life in this world some kind of a fairy tale. Not in this world. The question is, when bad things happen, can I believe God will use them to his purpose and do the kind of amazing things that only he can do? If not... If I, if I don't believe that, if I'm not connected to God and looking for him to fulfill his purpose in that regard, then when I read verses like James chapter 1, verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That becomes ridiculous. When I read Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Okay, I understand I'm going to heaven, but how do I deal with it here? And unless I'm allowing the Lord access and I'm engaged with him, if I know that he loves me in spite of the hardship and the difficulty, the problem with me, I become so detached from the Lord's purpose and his, his love for me I can't begin to imagine that he will do what it says in Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, folks, that doesn't mean that everything is going to work out for my benefit as I perceive it in this world. It doesn't, you know. And this is what happens to people. They have hardship and difficulty And they allow that to become a wedge that separates them from the Lord. To people who have known and believed the love that God has for us. You see, if I believed in the love that God has for me, then I would believe that I am in a place where God can use me in spite of the mess in my life. If I believed in the love that God has for me, then it might affect my perspective of how I understand my life. Might might affect my perspective of how I understand success. Instead of thinking that I have to amass this 
huge pile of material possessions and be the envy of every person, I might understand, I might begin to understand what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I shouldn't be covetous because I have the Lord. This is why the Lord wants me to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all these things may be added to you from Matthew 6.33. Success is not about material things, folks. It's not even about the absence of hardship. It's about embracing the Lord's plan in the middle of hardship. It's an everyday part of life in this world. Hardship is where we live. People in the world are unwilling to consider that God loves them and that he has a much better plan for them than they do. This is why people in the world refuse to come to Christ because they're confused about who he is. They've got this religious picture of Jesus and unfortunately they have no idea. They have no idea. They believe the lie and they miss the greatest truth, the truth that God is love which is really here in verse 16. It's a restatement from verse 8. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. We abide in love. We are the body of Christ. We act in accord with love. We submit to love. We agree to love. We remain with love, steadfast in love, faithfully to keep the love of God. God is in us. And we are sealed with his Holy Spirit. In the book of Jude, verse 21, Jude, writing to the body of Christ, writing to believers to contend for the faith, tells them to keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Great advice. In the book of Acts, chapter 5, at the end of the chapter, the apostles, following Christ's um, ascension, are appearing before the religious leaders in Jerusalem for the second time. They appeared before them in chapter 4 and now again at the end of chapter 5. And things did not go well. You have to think the apostles... Standing before the religious high, you know, the high priest is right over there, and all the Sanhedrin court. They had to have some hope that at some point these guys were going to get it. That they were going to, oh, I, we understand now Jesus was the Messiah. Gee, we can do this together then. No, wasn't going to happen. In chapter 5, verse 40, when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Almost sounds like they didn't take time to breathe. What is it that makes a person successful? Is it really having more money than you can spend? And if that were true, then why do so many people in that situation hate their lives? 
could it simply be being who and where God has called you to be for his purpose? Wherever that is. If I were to ask the brothers and sisters of the persecuted church in Syria or in Iran or wherever, are you successful? What would they say? This past week, I've been thinking about our sister Asia Bibi in, in Pakistan. This is a lady, mother of five. She's 45 years old now. Um, she was arrested in Pakistan for blasphemy, which she did not do, blasphemy against Allah, you know, before the Islamic court there. And uh, she was, from what I understand, she was pretty badly mistreated. And uh, that's probably putting it politely. Um, and she's been in prison for seven years now. Um, even though the people in the Pakistani legal system know that she has done nothing wrong, even by their laws. Uh, after the vice president of Pakistan was assassinated by his own bodyguard for suggesting that there should be some changes in the law, I wonder if anyone would dare consider that she should be released. She is in terrible, terrible health. Almost impossible for her to see her children or her husband as there are death threats against them. Uh, her death sentence has been overturned. She's not in danger of being executed right now uh, by the, uh, the Supreme Court of Pakistan. But she's also in no danger of getting out of prison. I don't know that she will ever be released. Only the Lord knows. I think she might be one of the most successful people on the planet. Take that, Bill Gates. Abiding with the Father. Abiding with Christ. Abiding with love. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. How do we understand God's love? We love him because he first loved us by the example of Jesus. We abide in love. We act in accord with love. We submit to God's love. We agree with God's love. We remain steadfast or faithful to keep the love of God. God help us. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us today. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that works in spite of us, Lord, and not because of us. And, Father, for the wonders that you do in the lives of men and women, Lord, what an encouragement it is, Lord, just to see your hand at work in people, to see them changed and affected. We thank you so much for these two young men who gave their lives to Christ Friday night in Old Town. 
And we pray for them, for Jose, for Santiago, Lord. We pray, Father, touch them, encourage them, draw them to yourself. Father, plant them in a church where they can grow and receive instruction. And Lord, use us as your servants, Father, to encourage and, Father, to build up the body of Christ in these last days. Father, give us grace to make it through the hardship and the difficulty. Father, you know what's coming, and we don't. As we're praying together this morning, if you're here and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and the Lord has spoken to your heart, you have a desire to know Jesus Christ, we want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior before you leave here, before the end of this message. If you have a desire to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I would like for you to repeat this prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a new life in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.